Happy New Year. Happy 2022. I am stoked to ring it in with you, imposters. My name is Courtney Heater, and I'm the host of You're Not Qualified, the podcast you're listening to right now. So are you the goal-setting, resolution-making type? I have a plan. I am definitely a goal setter. So usually I map out the major goals I have for the year, normally the December prior to the coming year. And this year includes growing this podcast and climbing a couple volcanoes, which I will talk about much later on. But you can help me with that first one. This is the ninth episode, but you're not qualified. I can't believe it. It started just in the middle of November, and there are so many amazing conversations to come in January, and I'm so excited to share them all with you. So please subscribe if you haven't yet, and tell a friend, anyone who you feel could benefit from conversations about chasing whatever the hell it is you want and doing the thing that scares you. The goal of this podcast is to help you achieve the amazing things I know you are capable of and encourage you to make the world a better place while you do it. Who do you know that you think could benefit from these conversations? Is it maybe your best friend? Is it maybe a coworker who talks about doing something? Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's your grandma. Maybe it's your uncle. Whoever it is, I'm sure that there's somebody that can benefit from conversations like these. And what better way to go after it than hearing from people who have done the thing and they are thriving. Today's guest is living her dream and quite literally helping other people live theirs. She is a self-published author, museum expert, which is so damn cool, and helps other people publish their stories too. And she encourages anyone who wants to write that book, even without an English degree, even without an MFA, even without 30 plus years of experience in the subject they want to write about. She just says, start and do it. And she tells you how to make it happen. Plus, she is cool as shit and this conversation was really fun. So let's go. Dance off, bro. Me and you. All right, imposters. Today we are chatting with Mackenzie Finkley, self-published author, American anthropologist, museum stan. I wasn't sure if kids are still saying that, but I yes. and an amazing human who helps other humans become published authors when they didn't think that they could be. Mackenzie, welcome to the You're Not Qualified podcast, and thank you so much for being here. Hey, Courtney. Thanks for having me. Okay, I love to kick it off with a background of the industry that you are currently in, in terms of traditionally the qualifications that you usually see for published author, especially those that are writing about niche topics like museums. So even fiction, nonfiction, whatever the case, what is the typical background for an author and why are you unqualified according to that typical background? Awesome. Thank you for specifying the question. Cause like I could go into museum qualifications or publishing qualifications. So I'll start with publishing. Being an author looks different for nonfiction versus fiction. It also looks different for industry nonfiction versus memoir versus creative nonfiction and so on. So for industry nonfiction, 
what you're generally looking at, and this is again a sweeping generalization, is going to be people with a lot of expertise in the subject that they're writing in, so much so that they put together an entire book about it. And what this can often look like is 40 plus years of experience in the field, these really insane opportunities and things that they did in their lifetime. That's why a lot of people feel like you have to be famous or had to have done something really special and incredible to write a memoir and sell it. And then you have on this other side fiction where people feel like they need to have an English degree or a creative writing degree or all of this really specialized training in order to write and then publish a book as an author. Mm-hmm. But the publishing industry is changing as we know it daily, thanks to this really handy tool we've gotten in the last 20, so maybe more than 20, 30, 40 years called the internet, (laughs) um, where anyone can be anything, including a published author. Yeah, absolutely. They can literally self-publish. You can self-publish for free. So have at it. Though in that realm then of the self-publishing, will your readership be much less if you publish through a house? Not necessarily. Okay. So what you're looking at is I could use David Goggins as an example. He recently wrote and not self-published, but hybrid published, which is effectively self-publishing. And I can get into the nuance of what that looks like a book. He got a deal from a big publishing house for a significant sum of money for them to publish his memoir. And then he had a moment where he was like, wait a minute, this is my story. Why am I giving someone else ownership of my story? So he then went and found a hybrid publisher, which is effectively where you pay for all the services up front to make your book really awesome. So self-publishing, but not for free. And then you publish the book. And so he self-published and he has this entire audience of people with his podcast and he was able to record break sales on his book, like featured in the uh, New York Times Square ads, record breaking sales for his book. Holy cow. So one of the keys then is to have a bit of a following or some sort of other medium where you do talk about yourself and you have the people that are already interested in your story. Audience building is a huge part of being an author, traditionally Mm -hmm. published or self-published. It's books are sold they are not bought. They are not just happened upon. They are sold. And that is the reality of the publishing industry. That's a really interesting distinction. Like I wouldn't even consider the differences and nuances of the definitions of those two words, but in the the author world. Wow. That's interesting. And so this, this idea then you did come up with or not come up with, but on a video on Instagram of yours that I was looking at, you mentioned the blurb, you have to publish traditionally to be a professional author as one of those cool TikTok videos where you're like this, and that's not true, which is really fun. And I gave me some ideas for TikTok because I'm brand new to it, but I would love to know more about what it means that in terms of you have to professionally, traditionally publish in order to be a professional author. That's just not the case. So let's go deeper into that. There is so much to be candid gatekeeping in the publishing industry. Mm -hmm. And so because people have fought really hard to get to where they are, traditionally published authors have gone through a lot 
in order to get their work published. It's not simple or linear. There can be this almost like generational, I suffered so you should too kind of attitude where there gets to be a little bit of snootiness and no up nose turning. And this is not every traditionally published author, but when they look at people that just go mm, self-published without having to do everything that they went through and climb the mountains and everything. They didn't bleed enough. They climbed their own mountains. They battled mm -hmm. their own war in order to get that book out and put it out to people and be vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But it wasn't the same storm. Yeah. And it just, I have so many visions of past authors and new authors all the way back to the very early American authors or the very early European authors like Mary Shelley. And I can't even imagine they used to have to write under male name pseudonyms because they couldn't even get published as a female. So we have grown leaps and bounds, but there's still so much more to go. In oh, terms so of much more taking down those barriers for because people. here's the other thing as it stands. And this is a statistic. I can't say that as, word either. I always just stands, say stats. Yeah. Yes. As it stands, there's a statistic from a 2019 study that only 11% of traditionally published authors are people of color. Oh, that's terrible. So that's the other piece of the gatekeeping as well, is that there is much change to be done within the industry. Do you see any change happening now? Absolutely. I went through a publishing program through NYU over the summer, so summer of 2021, and they actively addressed all of these things and how they're looking to change within their individual publishing houses. I'm watching these presentations from individual houses and their plans of action that I'm not supposed to divulge at all, <laughs> but there is active change that is happening within specific institutions. So it's slow, but there are also these indie publishing houses that break off from these larger institutions, because that's the other problem that we're seeing is there's this monopoly where you're looking at the big five slash four. There's a little bit of a merger situation going on right now where you're having these publishing monopolies. It's imagine if you only could apply to four schools. And there hmm. weren't thousands of schools to apply to in the United States in order for you to get a degree, in order for you to be a published author. You only have four shots, like 25% each time. That sucks. Yeah. yeah. I'm happy to hear that it's like a lot of other industries and there's breakouts, but I hope that the funding though, for those indie publishing companies is pretty good where they typically get their, their money. That's a really good question that I don't know the answer to definitely. I could make an educated assumption that much like any other business, they find money through investors or through crowdfunding or through other means. Oh, so it's like a startup publishing house. Yeah. I like that concept. We need more of those. That's a good idea. So if you don't want to be an author, you can start your own publishing house listeners. Exactly. That's actually something that a lot of authors are doing, especially self-published authors. You could just self-publish outright um, using Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing. Just put mm -hmm. your thing up there and life goes on. But you could also set up your own publishing house. If you can L open an LLC in your state, which anyone can, it just costs different things depending on which state you are in to file, open your own business and you can literally set up your own publishing house. Now, if you want to get business from other authors, that's there's a lot of other steps to get there, but you could be your own publishing house and publish your own work. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's awesome. That would be really creative and fun. I'm curious how many people have just gone off and do it. I hope that people are inspired after hearing this over the years. So you did mention that for specifically nonfiction writing, it's a lot of times a very lifetime of knowledge. I've earned it over the 40 years in the industry. You're not even 40 years old. You also worked your butt off though, to be able to specifically get into the museum industry and then write about it. So let's talk a little bit about very specifically your museum experience and writing about the museum experience because of your first book, Beyond the Halls, An Insider's Guide to Loving Museums. What did that look like? Tell me all the times you were shot down by these crap heads. (laughs) Oh boy. So let me preface this by saying that this journey began for me in the before times before COVID, because so much has changed about the museum industry since this pandemic happened. Much like bookstores, a lot of them Mm. have closed. A lot of people lost their jobs. There's a lot of different things happening within the museum industry. It is also rapidly changing at the moment. So I got my degree in anthropology, and then I did a special certificate in museum studies. And when I graduated from college, I was hell bent on working at a museum. I applied to museums all across the country. I didn't care where it was. I wanted to go work in a museum. And what ended up happening was the job offer that I got was in the town where my parents lived. (laughs) So I moved to Galveston, Texas to work at the Bryan Museum. And I was the executive assistant to the director. And it was a great experience. It really was. And I will tell you that I was furloughed at the start of the pandemic, much like a lot of people. Mm -hmm. And then the director retired and they didn't really need me because who am I to assist if the director retires? So there's been changes of hands at that particular institution. But what that looks like is I got a lot of very specified training in order to go and work in the museum field. And What I've been learning more recently is that might not necessarily be what you need because Mm. there are a lot of different pieces and parts at play at museum institutions. And a lot of those roles don't require extensive museum studies experience. Would they benefit from it? Absolutely. They would Mm -hmm. do many people get it. Not necessarily. It depends. So what I'm saying is there's a distinction between like curators for example, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. who need to have like definitely graduate level, if not PhD in the thing that they're curating. But then you have accountants, which are a vital part of the museum and a vital part of the business, but they don't have to have museum studies specifications. Mm -hmm. Neither do event planners, educators, hopefully, but not necessarily And here it goes again, friends, the transferable skills, and in this case, also transferable experiences, which will boil down to a bunch of different skills, obviously, that lead up to you having all of these different experiences and your learning skills through those experiences. But you don't have to very specifically have exactly what they're looking for on paper. I don't know if you've heard, there's that whole thing where women don't apply for jobs unless they're pretty close to 100% qualified for it. Men do usually apply for jobs if they're a little less qualified than when women are. But just throw that out the window and 
redevelop the skills and the qualifications that you do have for whatever industry. So for example, the conservation industry, maybe you do have a background in coding or you have a background in management. All of these different businesses that are operating as businesses, especially if they have any sort of an online capability like a web app or a phone app or something, they're going to need people with expertise in those areas and not necessarily the qualifications of years and years of experience in that industry. So if you are applying for something and you do find that they need experience in an industry, you could get that by volunteering, but use your hard skills that you've developed through a career otherwise in tandem with volunteer experience in the industry. What I'm trying to say and what Mackenzie has said and will keep saying is there is always a way. Sometimes you just have to get creative about the path that you took, maybe take one course on the side, one volunteer on the side, and you're better set up than you probably think that you are. I have to, depending on the institution, even the director. It would be most ideal if the director had extensive experience in the museum industry, but most of them really have a master's in business administration. I was going to say, it's got to be <laughs> finding a needle in a haystack to have somebody that has business professional experience up to a director level along with museum experience? Yes. Does that even exist? It does. And you're looking at really big institutions Mm -hmm. like the Met, where that current director started as some director's executive assistant. Okay. What was your career goal? So at the time, I was like, I want to be the director of a museum. Yeah. I want to be in charge. Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf, and Dobby has come to save Harry Potter and his friends. So I'm going to start at the bottom of the totem pole and figure out the steps that I need to get there. Mm -hmm. And as I was learning the whole, I need an MBA, I was like, ugh, barf. I don't don't want to be a business person. (laughs) I'm not here to be a business person. That's why I got my degree in museum studies. (laughs) Hell yeah. Yep. Yeah, it's, uh, God, and graduate school is typically two years, but it's still so expensive. And then yes. these days you're, you're barely guaranteed even a look at your resume, even if you do right. have a master's degree. And one of the big sticking points at the museum industry right now is that staff is largely underpaid. And it's only right now, or has that always been the case? It's probably always been the case, but it's more prevalent now. Mm-hmm. that people are demanding because also a lot of museum institutions are 501c3 nonprofits, which means they're required to share what everyone makes. Okay. And then on the other flip side of it is when people are posting job openings, people are requiring like, show us the salary. Don't waste my time. Tell me what is the salary you expect for this position? Oh yeah. That's so many industries now that I am seeing, especially a lot of people on LinkedIn. They're fed Mm -hmm. up with it. Put it in the job description, stop wasting people's time, but also nonprofits. I don't think people are expected to make six figures, but that's what directors do. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. And it depends on the institution because some are publicly funded and some are privately funded, has a little bit more flexibility, probably has a bigger budget, but the publicly funded institutions, they are at the mercy of the budget of the state or even the federal government. So what you're looking at is something that 
is you typically a lot tighter and less flexible. And so that's where you get these lower paying jobs. But depending on if they're tied to the government, you might be getting some really great benefits. So it's like, yeah. it's a give and take. And you could get the pension and great health insurance. Right. Yeah. Then what the privately funded museums will do is say, this is what everyone else is getting paid at this other institution. And it's, sorry, but your budget, I know your pockets are way deeper. Oh yeah. You know? <laughs> so it's there are these shady, depending on the institution. Yeah. Uh. So when we were chatting via email, you mentioned somebody that had said, you are so young and you get comments like that. I, I like even say it like that though. Oh my God. <laughs> like even worse. just thinking about somebody saying that to somebody else in a professional environment, like I just, I want to explode. Mommy's very angry. Yeah. But what was that? What was that experience like? Yeah. So I'll paint a picture. I worked multiple jobs throughout college. I started my career as soon as I could to get my experience. And what I learned in the course of entering new jobs is that it's a really good idea to get to know the people you're going to work with. So when I start a new job, doesn't matter what level I'm at, I reach out to people and ask for one-on-one -on -one meetings to get to know them. Because if I'm going to be working with your department, I want to get to know you also as a human not yeah. just what you're going to be doing at your job, but you as a person. And I think that's a really great way to manifest a productive work environment. Wow. What a mature thing for a young woman to think. Crazy. I know. Oh my God. So what I call the 50s? in, I know. So what I do is I call in multiple, all of the department heads at the museum for one-on-one -on -one meetings, because I know I'm going to be interacting with all of them because the director could assign me any task that they please. And it could be in any department. And so I want to know who has the best solutions to the things that need to get done. And I also want to get to know my coworkers. Wasn't a very big museum. Mm -hmm. But so someone came into my office. I had my own office. Can you Ooh. imagine? Came into my office, into my space for a one-on-one -on -one meeting and sat on the other side of my desk and asked me how old I was. Now, I answered pretty quickly because initially the question didn't bother me. It's the response. A lot of people will say, it's none of your business. You don't need to know, which like is a fair response. It is. Totally I think fine. it might be like a legal thing. Also that, <laughs> yeah. right? You know, yeah. like I don't think you're technically allowed to ask that question. Exactly. But here we are. So at the time I was 22. And I said, I'm 22. And he, they, <laughs> and they throw their head back and said, you're such a baby. Oh my God. Threatened much? Yeah. Person? And that was something that I was like, how do I proceed with the conversation from here? No kidding. I'd be like, but how old are you? Like, <laughs> yeah. Oh, haha, you're so old. <laughs> mm -hmm. How old are you? And I like, I'm not one to throw shade back and I could but I'm going to refrain. And it's just one of those things where it's like the positions people are in at their life are all very different. The training that they get is all very different for all these very various reasons. But ageism goes multiple ways. Exactly. That is exactly the lesson here. And it's inappropriate to ask. And you don't know somebody's history of how hard they've worked the drive they've had for ages. You might've known that you wanted to do this since you were five years old. You probably did. 
So you like mapped out your life and you, you earn it. And that's just that's right. putting aside the hard work that you've put in. in 22 years. It's not like you're 16. Like, I mean, even then look at professional athletes. Oh yeah. For Simone example. Biles. I think she's pretty darn young. Yes. Yep. And that's, and then the ageism goes both ways with that too, because the older they get, it's, but I think that's a, it's a different skill set that you're using, like with your body and all the physical tools that you're putting on it. But at the same time, look at professional athletes. Like you don't sit there and tell Simone Biles, oh, you're such a baby. What are you doing at the Olympics? She earned her right to be there. Oh, 100%. She put in the hours and hours. I, that was the job that you were most recently furloughed from. Yes. Okay. Maybe he learned, they learned a lesson, but, and they hopefully will not ask again if it made the air awkward in the room, which I'm sure it did. Self-awareness is key to learning lessons. It is. And condescending comments are just never okay, but we shall move on. (laughs) So in terms of writing the book, just getting out there and writing the book, what is your advice to people, like just broadly, where should Mm -hmm. they go self-publishing route? Should they, what kind of investment should they make research? Should they do? Two things. One, anyone can write a book. Okay. Two, nobody writes a book alone. So I will expound upon that. A lot of people think that writing a book looks like a writer sitting in a chair at a desk in a dark corner typing away or handwriting away for hours without looking up, breathing, going to the bathroom, anything like that. And the reality is, is there are so many hands, not just two, that go into writing and publishing a book and making it great. There are at least five different people with different editor titles that have had their hands in helping me publish my book. And that's not including cover designers, coaching, the people helping set up the ISBN and the technical sides. There's all kinds of pieces that go into it. And you could do it all by yourself, but Mm -hmm. it would take a long time, many YouTube videos watched and much still probably money spent. Where do people find the resources for those helpful hands? Yes. So if you are looking to self-publish, there are a couple options when thinking about the resources to help you produce the work that you want to produce. There are all kinds of freelance people out there who are ready and willing to help. So you could go out and search and vet all of these people yourself and decide who is right for you. You can look for recommendations from other writers and self-published authors or the people that they've worked with. You can look across blogs. You can look at large-scale freelance work sites like Fiverr, though be cautious and be careful and be meticulous Mm -hmm. when looking on those large-scale work sites. Quick note about outlets like Fiverr, where you can hire freelance professionals. You can just to hire a couple of people to do one piece of what you're looking for. So a nice thing about a website like that is it's pretty curated to pieces of what you need. So say that you want to publish a comic book and you're looking for 
an artist because you love developing the storyline, but you need somebody to also contribute the artistic renditions of your storyline. You could go and have one artist draw one character to your specifications, another artist draw the same character to your specifications, and that doesn't have to be a whole lot of money using Fiverr very minimally, but from what I did see, it was, you know, they all set their own prices, but it's feasible even if this is a hobby of yours or you're just testing the waters. So you can have a few going at one time to pick the best one. And that that goes along with be meticulous and careful with those types of platforms, but you can absolutely baby step into it. You could also go to a hybrid publisher. So these are companies like I work and I coach authors at a hybrid publisher called New Degree Press. I will link this in the show notes, but New Degree Press is found at newdegreepress.com. Beautiful website, community-owned publishing. If you're curious about even learning more, or if you think this might be the way that you want to publish your own work, highly recommend checking out New Degree Press, and maybe you could even work with Mackenzie. There are other ones. Scribe Media is really popular, and that's the one that David Goggins used. And these are publishers where you go and they have all of those talent and resources for you in-house. And so you can hire all of those people as a bundle package. They have already found all the people, vetted them, have a process in place, and you can hire those people. So you pay for those people, Mm -hmm. they help make your book awesome, and then you effectively self-publish. And that's your job now. That's so exciting. So are you finding authors or do they come to you? So they come to us largely through word of mouth and I am an author coach. And so what that looks like is as a person who's previously published, I can speak from experience and I can give my advice and guidance on the publishing journey. And then also particularly how to market yourself as an author, because as a self-published author, that is pretty much entirely your responsibility. When you go to a hybrid publisher and some hybrid publishers have PR packages that you can pay for, but most of the time you're just paying for a publishing package Mm -hmm. and then you're on your own. So there's a lot of lessons to be learned and responsibility to be taken. Okay. In your role, are you available 24 seven to these people? Are they booking your meetings and our segments or how do people work with you? Yes. So the benefits of working from home and being flexible with this one, because I work with authors all across the country and the world. I have international authors, which booking times with them is a real fun one (laughs) because of the time difference. The time. Yeah. But for me personally, it is about protecting my calendar and my mental health and only allowing them to book during certain times, unless they're in like Australia and we really got to pick like a 7 a.m. call or a 10 p.m. But yeah, protecting my calendar and they will generally book me for half hour long chats. I do a lot of YouTube live streams to give advice. I do a lot of workshops within our ecosystem. So a few people at one time you can capture. That's smart. Okay. So the first book you wrote, Beyond the Halls, An Insider's Guide to Loving Museums. I've started it. I love it. It's so much fun. It is 
really all about teaching you how to love museums and appreciate them for everything that they are along with your journey. I really think it's just, it's so much fun. However, the next book is a fiction work, Artifact Hunter coming the second half of 2022. Is this a normal progression for authors to, because I honestly don't, can't recall a time I've seen it where you go from nonfiction to fiction. Mm -hmm. So why did you take the leap? Did you really want to do fiction before and nonfiction was your ease into it? Or what was the whole path there? You can do whatever you want. Do whatever the hell you want. There we go. Honestly, so I will tell you that I started with nonfiction, never thinking that, I don't want to say never, but never really taking conscious mind that I would be a fiction writer someday. So I started with nonfiction because that's where my focus was for the time. I was doing all of this work with my museum studies degree and I was writing a ton and doing a ton of research and turning in all these papers. And then I thought, I think that there are people out there who could really benefit from this information that might not have the opportunity to take the same classes and have the same experiences that I'm having, but I think that it's worth sharing. So I compiled a lot of it in addition to a bunch of new stuff and interviewing a ton of museum industry professionals about their experiences to put together this kind of general guide to the museum industry, the history of museums, and why they're really not as scary as they're sometimes made out to be. But then we get to this part where I flipped my career trajectory a little bit. And after that first book, I ended up coming over to New Degree Press and becoming an author coach after being furloughed from the museum industry and really growing into loving the publishing industry and really just digging my heels in. And I was working with a lot of really great fiction authors and also feeling super intimidated by them Mm. because writing fiction is a whole different animal because you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm. It's this paralysis of choice situation that can happen. And it's also, how do you keep track of, of everything, of all the characters, all their backstories, all the world building, the settings, the timing, all of it. That was super intimidating right. to me. Uh, like think of Game of Thrones. Like, exactly. What? I don't, George, what? <laughs> how many sticky notes did he have on his wall? I don't know, oh. but- I decided to give it a try because I thought it would be a fun challenge, but also because I had an idea. I just had an epiphany. I had this idea for a story that I was like, yeah, this one has legs. And I just started writing. That's really exciting. And then the rest of it came from there, right? It was like, you probably had an idea if you're a hero or heroine, and then the the whole track of their journey and... I'm going back to the heroine's journey. I was a literature major. So I'm like, yes, that's like basically every story, but that's really exciting. It's completely finished now, I'm assuming. It's now to the point where I'm working with my revisions editor to refine it. Okay. So it's going through the multiple drafts phase. Is it? The story's done. The story's done. Is this the worst part of writing a fiction book? (laughs) revisions yes yeah I would say yes so the whole idea is that you want to make every part of the process fun otherwise why are you doing it Uh but this is probably the most painful part of it because you have to take a hard look at your own work and be actively critical of it not too critical to the point where you completely mangle it and tear it to shreds but Mm -hmm. 
you do need to look at it, often share it with different sets of eyes and uh, take it at more than face value. Yeah. I feel like that's really the, the, the main thing for me when writing it was let somebody else read it because it is your baby. It's really hard to be self-critical. Yes. You're too close to your own work. Absolutely. May I ask if this is going to be a trilogy or is there going to be a sequel or is that private information? No, I'm happy to answer that question because here's the thing. The way I have written this first book, there could be follow-ups. I love it. So you can decide. It could stand alone, but I could keep going and there could be follow-ups. And I think that's the, that's another beauty of being self-published and just doing whatever you want. Yeah. If the audience loves it and they beg for more, it's, it's the Taylor Swift method. She said in an interview once that she just lurks and she listens to what the audience wants and she just lets them tell her exactly what they want. And then she does it. And then you wonder why it works (laughs) because they literally told her what they wanted. So I think that's another thing where, again, audience building is important because to a certain degree, like you're writing for yourself, but you're also writing for other people. You have a story that you want to tell and you don't want to just shout it into the void. It's meant for certain people to read. Yeah. And who's your captive audience ideally for this book? Who are you writing for? What genre? Mm -hmm. So where this book has landed, it's ultimately turned out very YA. Okay. With just like a hint of cinnamon spice. So we're talking very light spice. It's not anything intense. Like a shit here and there? Or... Yes. Okay. <laughs> a little bit of cursing. Let's see. A little bit of mild peril. PG-13. <laughs> mild um, peril. Yes. I hope to see that like on a TV show sometime. Mild yes. peril. So why do they call it the chasm of death? Well, we tried big smelly crack, but uh, that just made everybody giggle. So a little bit PG-13, definitely the main character is a college age young woman and I'm going, who's living in the 21st century. So I plan to write her like a college woman living in the 21st century would talk. Ah, I love it so much. And I, I keep thinking about your Taylor Swift reference and that like the second book you could have like 10 pages of somebody that wouldn't give your scarf back or something like the rebirth of (laughs) the, the first book. That'd be really fun. Without sounding like I'm at all comparable to Taylor Swift, because who the hell is? I once went on three dates with this guy, and at the end of the third date, I gave him my scarf because he was cold, and we were standing outside, and I wasn't going to invite him into my apartment, and then he kept my scarf. I literally never saw that scarf again. I remember texting him like a couple months after one of us ghosted the other and he, he probably ghosted me, but I ended up asking him if I could have my scarf back and he never said a word. But that scarf, it was so special because it was actually a blarf. It was a blarf, which is a blanket scarf, B-L-A-R-F. And I loved that blarf, it was huge. And it was so perfect and cozy and warm. But all this to say is I get it. Like, give the scarf back, Jake. But also, maybe we should just ease up on Jake a little bit, eh? So if you did have to give a couple of nuggets of, I know I'm qualified and it's because of X, Y, Z, what would you say? When I think back to writing my first book, it's that I know I'm qualified 
because I did it. And that's all you really need to give yourself is like, you don't necessarily, there's a lot of external slash internal pressure that we put on ourselves. So societal expectations that we create into our own expectations that make us feel like we can or can't do certain things. And I know that sounds vague, but for me, the idea of writing a book about museums and the museum industry from the perspective of someone who was very fresh in it at the time and still is truthfully seemed like, has this been done before? Is this Mm. okay? Is this allowed? Mm. And with self-publishing, anything goes really. But at the end of the day, I put in the work and I looked to other people and other experts. You don't have to be an expert in a thing to write a book about it. You just have to be passionate enough to put in the work and to write out thousands of words. And I just interviewed a bunch of people in the industry who had the lived experiences and asked them about their stories and then did the research and then put together a book. Who are a couple of amazing people you've met through that journey? Who really stuck out? One of my favorite ones, there were two and they both work at the same institution, but One of my favorite interviews was with Dr. Dirk Van Turenhout, who is the curator of anthropology at the Houston Museum of Natural Sciences. And I asked him like one question and he talked for two hours and it was the best interview that I did because he was such an incredible storyteller. And the experience was so fun too, because his office is off site in like a secret location vault where they keep all of the secret other museum stuff. What is he like in the Pentagon? So it was this very much, and he was telling me these stories about the things that he had done. And I'm like, holy crap, are you Indiana Jones? I'm going after that truck. Oh, I don't know. I'm making this up as I go. Yeah, is he the artifact hunter? (laughs) Right. This like one time where he got flown off to South America to go retrieve an artifact. And I'm like, can I be you? (laughs) This sounds so much fun. That exists? Yeah. My God, what a fun world he lives in. Yes. Isn't that your favorite museum? Yes. Yes. (laughs) I saw that. I've never been to that museum. Why is it your favorite? For me, The Houston Museum of Natural Sciences is my favorite museum in major part because of the nostalgia. So it was a museum that I went to multiple times as a kid growing up in Houston, Texas. And that's the other thing too, people who go to museums as children are far more likely to be people who go to and love museums as adults. But for me, it's part nostalgia, but also part every time I go, their exhibits are just done really well. I'm always left feeling impressed, satisfied, filled with wonder. And I just really like that museum. And I think in many ways, my heart belongs to natural history museums. I think those are my favorite as well. They are beautiful representations of the world. I especially love it when they have extensive dinosaur exhibits. Yes. The one in Bozeman, Montana has the most extensive Triceratops skull collection in the world, I think. And it's amazing. Have you been to that one? I haven't, but I've heard about it. (laughs) It's so good. It's so good. And then they have the huge T-Rex at the Milwaukee Public Museum. Oh my God. I just love them so much. There's uh, I think you would love the Houston Museum. I will put it on my list. About 10 years ago, they spent a good like $10 million redoing their dinosaur hall. And it is just chef's kiss. Melt. 
I love it so much. I live in Seattle and the University of Washington has the Burke Museum of Natural mm-hmm. History. And it is also exquisite. It's just, uh, I love it. I'm going to put Houston on my list. I never make it down to Texas. I never have a reason have there. Have to the Pop Culture Museum in Seattle? Yes. Love it. Talk so about much fun. amazing rotating exhibits. They have the best I've seen. So They're much fun. So fun and interactive. Their fantasy is always my favorite. It's so cool. And then they have the whole horror themed one, which is always so much fun. Oh, I love it. What is your favorite part of museums at the Natural History Museum? Do you like the dinosaur stuff? Do you prefer like human history? I do really like the dinosaur stuff. I totally geek out over human history because not every natural history museum chooses to include the like the evolutionary anthropology aspects of mm. how we came to be where we are. A lot of them will have the health and sciences, human anatomy, how our bodies work, but the whole where we come from, that I could just nerd out on for days. So you picked the right major. Yes. <laughs> it took some time to get there. It wasn't the first major I picked, but I love it. Did you do a minor in writing or anything? No, I did a minor in architecture. Wow. That's, I guess museums are sometimes really gorgeous architectural wise. Mm -hmm. So I suppose that does fit in. And a lot of it all fits together in how humans interact with the space that they're given and how they move through spaces, how space Mm. affects them and their mood for everything from lighting to structuring to also thinking about, is it handicap friendly? Yes. That's very important. All floors. Some museums mm-hmm. are absolutely massive mm-hmm. in all, all aspects. That's really interesting. Um, I'm trying to think of the most beautiful museum I've seen. I can't think of it. I've never been to, well, you know what? The Mopop is really amazing on the outside. It's really funky. Yes. If anybody is not sure, you should Google it because it's like, you can see it from the plane and you're like, what the hell is that? And then you get into Seattle, like you haven't been here before. It's like a big alien blob in the middle of the Seattle center, but really pretty, very colorful. It's so colorful. So beautiful. We talk a lot about transferable skills Mm. in other episodes and it sounds really anything you go to college for, you have to be able to research. You have to be able to prove and sustain an argument to convince somebody of your point of view. So those are probably very prevalent in the two things you studied. But in terms of other transferable skills, can you think of anything that really helped you out with writing in particular? With writing in particular, I had an answer till you said writing in particular, but you know what? I still have an answer. Okay. So with writing in particular, as with many career opportunities, it is vital to have people skills. Soft skills are important. You cannot do without them. You simply cannot. Unless you manage to find a job where all you have to do is look at a computer and talk to no one at all, you're going to need people skills. And for me, that involves a lot of collaboration with my editors, being on the same page, making sure I'm being honest, because my editor will give me deadlines and they will set expectations for me and the work that we do together and collaborate. And if I'm not being honest about the work that I'm putting in, I'm only going to make it harder on myself. And there's a lot of people skills and communication and empathy that comes with talking to authors who are going through the publishing journey and hitting rough spots Mm -hmm. and going, Hey, those are normal. 
let, I'm not here to invalidate your feelings. Let's talk about it. Or to do interviews, nonfiction or fiction interviews is a skill that I use regularly for nonfiction. That looks like interviewing people about their expertise so that I can glean from it, inspire stories, do more research. For fiction, it looks like interviewing people that have lived experiences that I don't have personally, but that I want my characters to have, mm-hmm. learning from their lives in order to shape the character arcs. Are you doing more interviews, would you say, for fiction than nonfiction? Or does it really depend on the character's path? I would say that it really depends. For me personally, I did more interviews for my nonfiction book. Yeah. I I could see that too, because museums are, if you're thinking about from an outsider's perspective, which is mine, museums seem like the cookie cutter, like they all have the same, like all natural history museums will have the human component, the animal component, the dinosaur component, but there's so much intricacies that you had no idea. And you wouldn't really know all of them until you talk to everybody that does it. Right. In the world of fiction then, and you're interviewing these people, are you building the story as you interview or are you trying to f- figure out how to develop an already baked idea or what does this, what does that look like? There is a lot of building as you go. Okay. Because the beautiful thing about character building, and this is going to sound weird to anyone who's not a writer, sometimes the characters do whatever they want. They become their own people mm-hmm. and they, you develop their backstories for them. But then that helps you determine how they're going to act in any given situation. So I will build the characters, give them a backstory, give them a description. I'll interview people who lived those experiences and so maybe get a few pull quotes from them to inspire dialogue for the characters. And as I'm writing a scene, because I have such a deep understanding and idea of this hypothetical person and how they would act, it's much easier to write what they might do in that situation and to be consistent with it. That's yeah. Cause you don't want a character to be out of character unless it helps with the plot in some way. Do you have anything else that we didn't cover that you're like, I really want to talk about this. There are lots of ways to become a published author. Okay. It doesn't have to be traditionally published. It can be hybrid. It can be self. There are many avenues and there's no one right answer. There's no one right way to do it. What matters is what is the best decision for you and for your book? Because that's the other thing too, is I'm not saying that I'm never going to do traditional publishing. It's something I'm open to the idea of, but for my last book, for my first one, tried self-publishing first. And for my fiction book, I decided that, you know what, for this one, I'm going to do self-publish too. But in the future, I might go a different route. And that's for you to decide. Would you use an indie publisher or would you use one of the four main? I think I'd love to partner with an indie publisher to use a smaller press. Because that's the other thing too, is a lot of publishers, when they're choosing you, they're choosing books that align with their brand or Mm -hmm. their specific imprint. There are horror imprints. There are sci-fi imprints. There are romance imprints. And they'll pick what's right for them, what will sell to their specific audience. And remember that you hold all the cards. It's your work. You own it. And you can choose where you want to go with it. Yeah. Don't get bossed around. Don't get thrown around. Just stand your ground. 
Have you seen the show Younger? Yes. It reminds me of them. I, I believe they work at a publishing house, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. And some of the conversations that they have in those like small four or five person meetings about one person, basically they barfed all of their innards on a page, like everything they feel and think and do is like in a character development and probably amazing works. And they're just like tearing it apart. I wonder if yep. that actually happens. Probably it does. Probably does. It does, because the other thing that does happen in some publishing houses, not all, is you'll sign a contract and you need to pay attention and read the fine print, pay attention to what you're giving up and know what you're willing to give up. Because I think back to Taylor Swift example and how she's re-releasing all of her work because she signed a contract when she was 15 and didn't know I don't think, I really don't think that she fully knew all of the things that she was giving away. So when she tried to make a movie about her life, she couldn't use her own work. Are you kidding? And there are authors out there who will sign away all, nearly all of the copyright to their work to the point where people will go and make entire TV shows and movies off of them without involving the author at all. And the author doesn't see a dime off of what was originally their brainchild. And that just breaks my heart. It's very ugly. It's an incredibly ugly side of stealing. There's lots of representations of stealing artistic vision. And I guess they're not immune to it. It's almost like highway robbery, Mm -hmm. right? Because you have the choice to not give the person your wallet who's holding a gun to your head, but you choose to do it. But then you end up with the short end of the stick. Yeah, you have your life, but you don't have all of your money. Trade-offs. So absolutely understand what you're signing, read all the fine print. Would you actually recommend getting a lawyer involved? Is that a thing? Yeah, it absolutely is a thing. And the other thing too, is when you're signing with traditional publishing houses, you have agents that represent you as well. Okay. And they should have your best interests at heart. And then again, remember that you hold all the cards because it's so easy to lose yourself in the query for an agent, asking someone to take you on, and then submitting to all these different publishing houses and feeling like you need to take whatever you're offered. You don't have to. And I know that comes from a position of some people have the privilege to not have to take just any offer that's thrown their way, but no one is making you. And negotiation is always on the table. Contracts are negotiable. Every industry, guys. (laughs) This is not, this is... One of them too. Always. I remember one of my first jobs, they sent over a contract and I was like 20 at the time they sent over a contract and I was like, great. Um, I'm going to take this to my lawyer and just have a look over real quick. And then I'll get back to you in a day. And they were like, huh? We <laughs> thought you were a, a simple minded 20 year old. You're so going young. To sign it. Yeah. Was just going to sign it and give it right back to us. And I was like, gosh, if I only had that wherewithal when I was even just 25, 33, now I do. I'm not going to live by their rules anymore. And I absolutely (laughs) fight for what I deserve, but as should everybody. Don't take the short end of the stick. Go after your dream. Write the book. Yeah. Do (laughs) that thing. I love it. Even the guests are saying it now. Go do that thing. To hell with no's. Just go do that thing. Where can they find you? Yes, I am in all corners of the internet. You can find me on my website at mackenziefinkley.com. You can find my book on Amazon as well as Barnes and Noble, as well as pretty much anywhere books are sold. 
And you can find me on pretty much all forms of social media. I've been trying out TikTok lately and it's going surprisingly well. Oh, girl, same. Oh, I'll have to get your tips because it's not going surprisingly well over here. So I'm happy. <laughs> it to takes that. time. It oh, takes time and a lot of posting. Yeah. <laughs> it's ridiculous. It's a shot in the dark kind of thing, but I'm pretty much everywhere. So give me a quick Google. I'm also happy to chat. I've got places on my website where you can reach out to me. Do you have room for more people to coach? Absolutely. If you are looking for someone to talk to, if you have a book idea, if you want to talk about how to publish a book, reach out to me on my website. Amazing. Ah, So happy to hear it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me, Courtney. If you took away anything from this amazing conversation with Mackenzie, I hope it's that you now have the confidence to go out and publish your work if you want to. Or if you had a glint in your eye of a story that has yet to be vomited on paper or vomited on your MacBook, then go and do it. Write your story, develop your characters, go get a publisher, go self-publish, whatever way is best for you. Mackenzie mapped it all out. And of course, I will have her information in the show notes where you can find me and her website for the book all in the show notes because I wanted to take the last bit of this episode to answer some of the listeners' questions. So I put out on Instagram asking anything that you could ask a published author, what would you ask a published author? And you guys delivered and had such cool questions. So I have three here that I grabbed. And I ended up sending these to Mackenzie after we recorded the episode, just to give everybody more time to ask. So she sent me her replies via email. So I'm just going to go ahead and read the question and then read her reply verbatim. Okay. The first question is, what's the weirdest thought you've ever had about one of your characters? I thought this was a great question. It made me giggle. Mackenzie's reply This may sound weird to those who are not writers, but I get motivated to write by imagining my character, main character usually, stuck in time wherever I left them last. I'm reminded of an episode of Friends where Joey hides books in the freezer when they get scary to keep the plot from progressing. An example there was when Beth gets really sick in Little Women, he puts the book in the freezer to keep her from dying, which is awesome. I'm actually not a huge Friends fan, but that episode in particular, I'm going to go find it and I'm going to watch it because that sounds like an amazing idea and it's really cute. Well, obviously it's not going to work, but it's cute to like freeze it in your mind and then dive back into the character when you're ready to accept their fate. I like that. The second one, what advice do you have to successfully get published? So this writer had a half-assed Office Depot copy. That was their words, but it is far from a decent printing. Mackenzie's reply, anyone can be a published author. What you need to decide is what kind of author you want to be, and where you want your book to go. With a manuscript, you have multiple options, two main ones really, query for an agent and start making moves to traditionally publish with a major or indie house press, or the second option, hire an editor and get to work on polishing your manuscript to self-publish with a print-on-demand service like Amazon KDP. 
Success is an interesting adjective that I do want to acknowledge. Determining your idea of success before starting is key to understanding where you want to go and the steps you need to take to get there. So that is her response to that one. I hope that writer is more motivated to go out and just publish now in that half-assed Office Depot copy. That's still a copy. You have it in print. It's awesome. And the third and the last question, how does one go about writing an autobiography that is interesting and marketable? Mackenzie's answer, you don't have to be famous to write an autobiography. Books are about storytelling, and an autobiography is the story of your life. Ask yourself why you felt compelled to put your life on paper, and chances are the reasons and events that made you want to write are the same why someone might want to read your book. When it comes to making it interesting and marketable, I look to editorial professionals. My marketing and revisions editor is the most powerful tool in my toolbox. So because you have an amazing story, and maybe even, and these are my words, maybe even think back to really cool experiences that you had and you're having a couple drinks with friends and you're telling them this story and people are really involved. They love hearing about your experience and that specific event. That's a marketable story and people will want to read it. And especially people that want to have similar experiences as you, or they're not really quite sure how to have the similar experiences. You you can offer a guide to have it. And that is it's a really amazing gift to be able to give to people is the experience that you had, what went wrong when you were doing it, what advice you can give so that other people can replicate or take bits of it and make their own journey. But I did want to say so many thanks for those people who wrote in questions. It's so fun to be able to engage with you guys that way. There's other episodes that I asked for your questions on that will be airing in January and then one in February. I think that I'm going to make this a semi-regular thing for the professionals that I have coming on, for those people that are making their own way in the world and doing that thing because so many other people are, I'm finding, really inspired by that. And I am just enamored with these people and it's incredibly inspired to go chase after my dreams too. So it's so fun to be able to share that with all of you guys. Of course, one more thing before I sign off here, your piece of trivia. So we talk a lot about natural history museums in this episode with Mackenzie. Mackenzie's favorite is in Houston, Texas. I don't know if I have like a favorite favorite, maybe it's the Burke Museum in Seattle, but the oldest such museum The oldest natural history museum in the United States is the Academy of Natural Sciences in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. And that was founded in 1812, which is just incredible. So if you can, go to your nearest natural history museum, absolutely write that book, and I will see you next Thursday. Bye.